0: Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. You can hear the Katie Halper Show every Wednesday at 7pm on WBAI, that's 99.5 FM or WBAI.org. You can always find our extended interviews and bonus episodes at Patreon, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Show, again patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. On today's episode, I speak to Phyllis Bennis. Phyllis Bennis directs the New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies and she works on the Middle East and UN issues. So thanks so much for joining me on the show. Great to be with you. You have a piece in the nation called Why We Need to Remember the Iraq War as well as the global resistance to it. And I want to talk to you about some other developments that have happened since you wrote that piece. But first, can you go over what the takeaways are from not only the Iraq War, but from, as you call it, the global resistance to it?
1: Well, I think the takeaways from the war are pretty well known. The fact that the U.S. years of sanctions devastated the Iraqi population, the war wiped out thousands and thousands of people, destroyed cities, destroyed a country. I do I do
0: know that a lot of innocent people have died and that troubles me and it grieves me. Uh, and I uh, applaud the Iraqis for their courage in the face of violence. I I am you know, amazed that this is a society which so wants to be free that they're willing to, you know, that there's level of violence that they that they tolerate. Uh,
1: and left in its wake, wake, a U.S. occupation that created an artificial, imposed sectarian government. It gave rise to organizations like ISIS, uh, directly connected to the the U.S. occupation, set in motion a huge. Uh, a decade and a half of, of human rights violations, of violence that is still plaguing Iraq. It made everything worse.
0: And it's now time for the Iraqi government to work hard to bring security in neighborhoods so people can feel,
1: can feel uh, you know, at peace. This notion that we can do regime change on the cheap, that we can do regime change and the U.S. troops will be welcomed with rice and flowers. In fact, it was John Bolton who was one of the big Mm -hmm. purveyors of that particular lie. Uh, You know, none of this was true. There were no weapons of mass destruction. There was no yellow cake uranium in Niger. There were no uh, aluminum tubes that could, quote, only be used for weapons of mass destruction. None of that existed. So this notion that somehow... U.S. regime change is going to bring democracy, going to bring freedom, even bring stability and an end to violence, it's just the opposite. It works just the opposite. So now we have these people in, in power still who come out of that war. John Bolton was you know, one of the key figures in the run-up to the war. One of the things he was so responsible for at the time was uh, orchestrating the ouster of the head of the Organization for the Prevention of Chemical Weapons which seems bizarre. He was at the time in the State Department under George W. Bush. This was 2002. And he was the undersecretary for, wait for it, disarmament affairs. How weird is that?
0: No. Here's
1: a guy who, yeah, he's here's a guy who, you know, never wants to negotiate disarmament. He wants to go to war instead. He's put in charge of disarmament affairs.
0: Was that like a, a joke or a bet that George Bush had? Because he also named him... Um... Ambassador to the United Nations, right? An institution he also doesn't believe in. It's like a
1: thing. Yeah. It's a thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the notion that somehow George Bush is looking pretty good these days because Donald Trump is so much worse. We have to be really careful not to fall into that. Yeah. George Bush was terrible, led this world into wars that the whole world is paying the price for. So we should not let him one bit off the hook. But there is a history here. One of the first things that Bolton did as the undersecretary for disarmament affairs, he realized that if it were to be proven, for just for example, that Iraq didn't in fact have chemical weapons or other weapons of mass destruction, which, hello, it didn't,
0: mm.
1: what would happen? It would really undermine the campaign the Bush administration was waging to build support for war. So what does he do? He goes to the president, of, well not the president, the, the head of the uh, the Organization for the Prevention of Chemical Weapons. It's a UN agency. It's a Brazilian diplomat. The guy's name is Jose Bustani, uh, and he goes and tells him, "You've got 24 hours to resign." And Bustani says, "I'm not resigning. I was just reappointed to a second term by 145 member states. I'm not. I'm not stepping down." So Bolton goes and organizes using tried and true U.S. methods of of uh, punishments and, and bribes and threats of, to diplomats and orchestrates his ouster. You're fired. Because what Bustani was doing was exactly what the head of that organization should be doing. He was trying to resolve the Iraq crisis without a war. And what he was doing was trying to persuade the Iraqi government under Saddam Hussein to actually join the organization for the prevention of chemical weapons. Because if they did... They would have been subject to incredibly intense, intrusive inspections that would have exposed everything, including the fact that there were no weapons of mass destruction. That would have really undermined the U.S. effort. So Bolton is the one who goes and orchestrates getting rid of him and replacing him with somebody who was going to follow the U.S. lead. So that's the kind of commitment to so-called disarmament that John Bolton represents. Then, of course, the remark that you said about the United Nations—that was actually in a debate with me back in 1994, when he wasn't even in government. He was—he was at the American Enterprise Institute, kind of cooling his heels, waiting for a Republican to be back in the White House so he could get appointed to something. And there was this big public debate.
0: Who held that and organized that?
1: It was an organization that has since changed their name. It used to be called the World Federalists mm-hmm. Association, or the World Federalists Something. Um, and it was a debate about the nature of the United Nations. And it was John Bolton on one side.
0: The United States makes the U.N. work when it wants it to work. Mm-hmm. And that is exactly the way it should be, because the only question, the only question for the United States is what's in our national interest. And if you don't like that, I'm sorry, but that is the fact.
1: And on the other side was my great departed colleague, um, Erskine Childers, an, uh, an Irishman who had worked... For for and at the U.N. for many, many years, and myself. I don't believe for a single second that most of the good Americans would accept some of the arguments that we have just heard. In
0: fact, I think some of them would be turning in their graves, as we say in Ireland, by what we
1: have been listening to. We were there to defend the legitimacy of the U.N., although we both had serious criticisms of it. I was in the middle of writing a book about U.S. domination of the U.N. and how it weakened the U.N., Mm. But, of course, that meant the U.N. should be strengthened, not abandoned. And here's John Bolton on the other side who gets up. He spoke right before me, and he said, there is no such thing as the United Nations.
0: The point is there is no United Nations.
1: There's just U.S. power.
0: There is an international community that occasionally can be led by the only real power left in the world, and that's the United States, when it suits our interests and when we can get others to go along
1: when it's not in our interests, there's nothing to be done and then he goes on with the famous remark that everybody has used lately in the articles about him where he said you could chop down the top, the top ten floors of u.n headquarters and no one would know the difference the
0: secretariat building in new york has 38 stories if you lost ten stories today it would make a bit of difference it could have been worse. He could have included all of the floors, right? You
1: could put it that way. It could have been worse. For him, It's the most
0: diplomatic <laughs> he, it gets, right? He,
1: right. He could have come up with an axe. Exactly. And, said, and I'm on my way to chop it down. Right. It could have been way worse. But remember, this was in the years of the Clinton administration, which mm. was a supposedly a multilateral-focused um, government in this country. We're supposed to like the UN, right? right? We're the host country of the UN. We're supposed to pay our dues. Bolton advocated none of that. He was saying we should get rid of the U.N. altogether. We should not pay our dues. And he made clear that he doesn't agree that international law should apply to the United States.
0: And what was he like, by the way? Just... He was a
1: bully. He was a bully. I, I won't say he was a bully at that debate. At the debate, he was just like out of control politically, but he was well behaved. Let's put it that way. At the U.N., later, when he was temporarily the ambassador to the U.N. under Bush, They knew that they they couldn't get the Senate to confirm him. So Bush did what's called a recess appointment. uh, When when the Senate isn't in session, the president can appoint somebody and they don't have to be approved, they don't have to be confirmed, but they can only serve till the end of that session, which in this case meant almost a year. And he was known throughout UN headquarters as an incredible bully. No one wanted to be around him. He would yell at people. Somebody years later described him, I think, very aptly, saying he was the kind of person who would, uh, how did he put it? He would kiss up and kick down. Mm. He was known for bullying everybody subordinate to him, but kissing up to everybody.
0: Being a sycophant.
1: Right, complete sycophant. And now the fact that this is the man who will have the first and last access to the ear of this president, the president who already has a, a, propensity for wanting war instead of diplomacy, he's going to be the last one to to whisper in the president's ear what he should be thinking, saying, and doing about national security issues. That's incredibly dangerous.
0: So scary. I think that sometimes the media can focus too much on personality over policy. And we see this with Trump and it can be a distraction. But it does seem like for, you know, National Security Advisor, temperament matters. And as you referred to, he's he's known as a bully. Um, Colin Powell disliked him. Uh, Security analysts said the same thing. And Bush wasn't able to wouldn't have been able to uh, get him through. He had to do a recess appointment because even Republicans opposed him in the Senate. Right. Right. Okay. there's this anecdote about a woman who's a texas public relations executive this event this anecdote took place in 1994 when john bolton was a, a lawyer in private practice and she'd written a letter to USAID complaining about lack of funding from a contractor and bolton represented them and he was trying to get her to retract her complaint and apparently this they were in a hotel in moscow and he would like rant and rave and bang on her hotel room door for two weeks and made disgusting remarks about her weight and uh, accused her of theft and even questioned her sexuality so sounds like a charming man both politically and personally but that is really scary i mean I don't know about you. I've I've been. I'm almost immune to all of the awful things that. Um, not immune, desensitized. I mm-hmm. guess is the word to the terrible right. things that Trump has done. This, I think, for for me at least, was a kind of new level of urgency. Or, and I, yeah. I'm not minimizing the other stuff, but this is like, oh, no, the no, world could I agree. end this in a second. An,
1: yes, I think this is a moment. I felt the same way. I had a moment of incredible gut wrenching fear. Yeah when I heard this had happened, it wasn't a surprise. We knew this had been talked about for weeks. It, it's consistent with Trump's patterns. Um, in this case, he's he's replacing all of the, the individuals, including a bunch of generals who were supposed to be the, quote, adults in the room, right. a horrifying notion in this country, I must say. But that's what it's been called. Not that they did much to rein anybody in, let's be clear. But that we now are replacing them with people like Pompeo, coming from the CIA, who's now the Secretary of State, supposed to be in charge of diplomacy. This is the man who believes that waterboarding is not torture mm-hmm. and that those who carry it out are, quote, patriots. Right. Uh, that he will be replaced at the CIA by the woman who's known around CIA headquarters as Bloody Gina yeah. because of her role in supervising a black site in Thailand where the, uh, the torture waterboarding of at least one person that we know of and presumably many others was carried out and that she signed off on the order to destroy the video evidence of the waterboarding, yeah. uh, that she's now going to be head of the CIA if she gets confirmed.
0: Yeah. And, and Gina has would get credit for uh, breaking the glass ceiling on torture. Yes, queen, yes, queen, yes, queen.
1: Yeah! I think if there was a glass ceiling that could keep torturers out of those positions <laughs> yeah, of I'm power, I want to keep it.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: Uh, and of course Bolton does not as we've said have to be concerned in the, uh, confirmed in this position he's bringing in trump is now bringing in people who reflect his own tendencies to want to fo- keep the focus on war instead of diplomacy and that's incredibly dangerous
0: what what can be done i mean you you your piece about resistance to the Iraq war, well, oh, first of all, just to clear something up, some people like to say that it's not that people lied about Iraq, but they just were mistaken. The main reason we went into Iraq at the time was we thought he had weapons of mass destruction. It turns out he didn't. I can also apologize, by the way, for some of the mistakes in planning and certainly our mistake in in our understanding of what would happen once you removed the regime. If you look back in history, When our Secretary of State went to the United Nations Security Council and told the world that there was weapons of mass destruction uh, in Iraq and we had to go after them, we in Congress and the world responded to that. I think that was a mistake in retrospect. But I don't think we had to lose the war in Iraq the way that we have if we had done what uh, is necessary to do. There have been a lot of questions about Iraq uh, posed to candidates uh, over the last weeks. I've made it very clear that uh, I made a mistake, plain and simple. You know, what we now see is a very different and very dangerous situation. The United States uh, is doing what it can, but ultimately this has to be uh, a struggle that uh, the Iraqi government and the Iraqi people uh, are determined to win for themselves. What's your response to that?
1: They lied. The United States knows that Iraq has weapons of mass destruction. Any country on the face of the earth with an active intelligence
0: program knows that Iraq has weapons of mass destruction. There is no doubt that Saddam Hussein now has weapons of mass destruction. There is no doubt that he is amassing them to use against our friends, against our allies, and against us. The war on terror, is, you can't distinguish between Al-Qaeda and Saddam when you talk about the war on terror. The choice is his. And if he does not disarm, the United States of America will lead a coalition and disarm him in the name of peace.
1: I believe the title was Bin Laden Determined to Attack Inside the United States. It did not warn of attacks inside the United States. It was historical information. You know, if people like me, who don't have access to any classified documents, who could just look at the history and say, this is not going to bring anything good the people of Iraq, and it's going to make things dangerous for us. If we could get it right, there's no reason why they should have been wrong. Everybody around them who knew anything, people in the State Department who knew anything about Iraq, said, this is not going to work. This is going to be a disaster. This was driven by ideology, not by political miscalculations. They, They guessed wrong. They weren't guessing what was right or wrong. This was driven by the ideological and and let's be clear, economic needs to get control of access, of who was going to get access to the Iraqi oil fields, who was going to control the, the pipelines across Afghanistan, how were you going to use the Afghan war to bring a more normal sense of the Iraq war mm-hmm. that was going to follow. All of these things were created out of an ideologically driven agenda, not one of politics that was going to shape uh, a more reasonable approach or something like that. It just didn't work that way. Right. Um, so I think you know we, we need to recognize the importance of resistance. The resistance will take a lot of different forms. I don't think we're going to be seeing massive global protests against these wars the way we did in 2003, partly because the nature of the wars is different. We no longer have 150,000 troops occupying Iraq. We now have something like 8,000 they're mostly special forces, but we are still killing Iraqis. Wow. That's what we need to be clear about. We are still supporting, training, and arming the Iraqi military that is carrying out more killing. So there's plenty of killing on all sides. I'm not saying the everybody who dies is, is a victim of U.S. aggression directly, but it's the U.S. war in Iraq that set the stage for all of this. And that's what we have to keep in mind. I mean, the question, the key question that you ask is, right, what is to be done? Yeah. It's a really hard moment. You have things like the Bolton appointment that doesn't have the requirement of Senate confirmation. So pressure on the Senate to do what? Well, one thing is pressure on the Senate not to confirm the CIA director and secretary of state positions. And in those hearings, keep the questions coming about what would you do mm. if John Bolton goes off the rails and calls for a first strike against Korea as he did as a as a private citizen if he does that as the uh, as the official national security advisor what will you do in response they need to ask these people that make that part of the public debate make that exposé part of what is in in the media every day that's part of it there needs to be more discussion about what will happen with the North Korea negotiations, which are the one chance that we have to avert war, uh, a U.S. war against Korea, if the U.S. pulls out of the Iran deal on May 12th. What's going to be the consequence of that? Why would Korea's leaders want to make any kind of a deal with the U.S. if they think the U.S. can't be trusted to keep its word once it signs on to an international treaty? So, these are the questions that need to be raised. People need to be writing them in op-eds and writing letters to the editor and calling the talk shows, raising these questions, not just saying, oh, my God, this is so terrible. We need to all say, oh, my God, this is so terrible, because it really is terrible. It's really frightening. But we need to move on it. We need to get the challenges out there.
0: And speaking of uh, op-eds, as you you said, Bolton made the case for preemptive strike and North Korea just weeks ago in the Wall Street Journal. So unless you want to have a future where North Korea can threaten uh, the United States with uh, nuclear-tipped missiles, uh, you have to look either at one more diplomatic play to convince China to reunite the peninsula with us in a constructive way and eliminate North Korea, or you have to look at the military option. People are worried about the difficulty, the chaos that might create today the risk is real what about the chaos when north korea launches missiles at the united states
1: and before that he had written in the new york times the way to stop how did it the iran- title was something like
0: stop- yeah the way to
1: stop iran's bomb is to, is to bomb, bomb iran. iran
0: yeah
1: it kept when i saw that title i kept thinking of of uh, john McCain's McCain,
0: exactly bar 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 bomb 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 iran. Bomb, yeah. bomb
1: bomb bomb yeah. bomb Beach Boys song,
0: Bomber <laughs> Bomb, bomb, bomb. Bom. <laughs> anyway, I don't know. that was I really mean, scary.
1: How can these people do that as with such glee? Yeah, and joking about such it, yeah. glee about yeah. going to war. The estimates that came out today about a conventional war on the Korean Peninsula could lead to 20,000 South Koreans a day being killed in a conventional war even if it didn't go nuclear, which it could. North oh, yeah. Koreans, they don't even count how many would die. Right, It's it's
0: unbelievable. And what about, I mean, you talked about the rehabilitation of, of George Bush, and, I mean, it's disgusting to see. Harry Fleischer uh, had a piece or tweeted about a piece in The Nation, which is funny. It's funny to see that he reads The Nation. but really. I wonder if he read my piece. So maybe he saw your article. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it was some criticism he had of Gillibrand. I mean it's so disgusting and outrageous that he's allowed to kind of appear in public you know I don't know how well known this is but he was on hardball in 2009 in 2009 he said we couldn't take a chance that Saddam would strike again like 2009 right he was again. yes
1: meaning he's still claiming that Saddam Hussein was responsible for 9-11
0: but after September 11th having been hit once how could we take a chance that Saddam might not strike again? That was three years after Bush admitted that Saddam actually had nothing to do with it.
1: What did Iraq have to do with what? The attack on the World Trade Center.
0: Nothing. I don't understand how that's not a bigger deal, how it didn't cause a oh bigger... Um, yeah, upor. I missed that somehow. Yeah, it was on hardball. And it's just, I mean, these people should be in prison. Um yeah, you know,
1: a few years ago, I saw Donald Rumsfeld walking down the street in downtown Washington, and I, I started, I, I, I was so startled by it, and I almost shouted out, they let you walk around like a person? Why yeah. aren't you behind bars? Yeah, And I didn't. I don't know why. I well, should have.
0: But How much does the discussion about Iraq and creating this vacuum and making it worse apply to Syria?
1: No, it's, it absolutely applies. I mean, the situation in Syria is a nightmare, a humanitarian nightmare, and it is not getting better. Um, in the recent weeks, of course, there's been the complete nightmare in, in Eastern Ghouta, where, where thousands of people have been bombed, have been driven out of their houses. Apparently over, somewhere over a thousand, maybe as much as 1,500 have been killed just in the several weeks. A few months before that, we saw the exact same thing happening in Raqqa, only it was being done by U.S. bombing raids, U.S. planes. The same thing in Mosul where it was done by the US, the same thing in Aleppo, where it was done by the Russians and the Iranians. So all sides in Syria are creating enormous, 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 enormous uh, um, human crisis. The difference is that when it's being done as it is right now by the, quote, other side, we hear a great deal about it. When it's being done by the United States and our allies, we don't hear so much about it. The key in Syria, in my view, is we have to figure out ways to stop the war, not to win the war. There's no winning this war, and I think that that's—it's a very difficult challenge because there's no good solutions. If the, the non-military solutions that I've written about in my book on ISIS and the global war on terror, which is largely about Syria, uh, and that others have written about, none of them are perfect. None of them are quick. None of them are total, but we have to keep in mind that the military solutions also are not. Right. We have to learn how to keep two ideas in our heads at one time. Saying that what the Assad regime in Damascus is doing in, in Ghouta is a, is a series of war crimes and must be stopped does not mean that we are supporting military intervention to stop it because that will only make it worse. So that's what we have to figure out.
0: That's so important because I feel like so many people are debating whether or not Assad is good or bad or or how, you know, not really good or bad, how
1: bad he is. It's very bad. It's a very bad government.
0: Yeah. But like you said, that doesn't mean that our response is right. military intervention. I mean, that has very little right. to do with it. The only reason right. it w- has anything to do with it is if you could argue that it's worse under him than it would be with intervention. But I don't think anyone who understands history or politics thinks that would say
1: that yeah. exactly. And I mean, we we do have to recognize there are Syrians who are calling for U.S. intervention, yeah. just as there were some Libyans who called for NATO intervention. Mm-hmm. The problem is, they were wrong. Right. And the fact that they were Libyans, the fact that currently there right. are Syrians saying it, doesn't make it right. right when exactly. people say we have to lift up the Syrian voices, that's absolutely true. But the problem is Syria is a country, they've now lost over over 10 million people who have been displaced. Five million of them are now out of the country as refugees. But Syria is still a country of 24 million people the syrian voice doesn't exist there are mm. many syrian voices right so when people say well we need to hear syrian voices absolutely but if the solution is just we need a syrian voice to say what i believe
0: yeah exactly that's
1: not the answer yeah that's yeah not just, the
0: answer. they're not a monolith so people are no, just not using that no no there are
1: syrian voices on all sides exactly. there are syrians who are saying we need us intervention there are syrians who are saying this is a terrible regime, but we don't want intervention. Right. There are Syrians who are saying we like this regime. Yeah, exactly. There's everything in between. Yeah. So, you it's know, a really that, great that's sneaky. not an answer.
0: Yeah, it's a, I think it's a kind of sneaky. Sometimes I think people just hear it and repeat it without being cynical, but it's pretty sneaky because it does suggest that you're being kind of um, imperialist or right. not allowing, uh, you know, autonomy or or not appreciating the the in, authentic indigenous voices. But as you say, there are many. Exactly. Yeah.
1: It's also true that you can, you can believe, as I do, that there was a, an indigenous, legitimate, well, uh, not just well-meaning, but, but really fantastic.
0: Um. That was Phyllis Bennis, who directs the new Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. To hear the rest of our interview, please go to Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Phyllis talks to me more about Syria, Russia, and hypocrisy around those two issues. You can hear The Katie Halper Show every Wednesday at 7 p.m. on WBAI. That's 99.5 FM or WBAI.org. You can always find our extended interviews and bonus episodes at Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show.